I went up this afternoon to the land at, at Spirit Rock, which is the place, for those who don't know, that we're trying to establish and build a meditation center only about five minutes from here or so. But back up in the valley a ways and sitting um, in a little clearing in the trees and just enjoying it because it's such a beautiful and peaceful piece of land and really kind of a treasure, a, a trust. Um, and we sat for a bit and it was near sunset, which gets earlier, as you've probably noticed. Um, and the clouds were changing, and it was very, very pleasant. And as we sat for a while, and it took a while, then the, then the wood started to come alive a little bit. And the crickets started to chirp again, and there was a little scurrying of some kind of a chipmunk or a squirrel. And while we were up there, we saw about Gosh, it was at least a dozen or 15 deer with their baby fawns. It was really beautiful. Um, and in some way, it captured so beautifully the spirit of meditation, which isn't so much to kind of climb the mountain and struggle to get some other place, but it's to sit down, as we do together on these Monday evenings, and be still enough that we can connect again with that which is really all around us. But we don't connect with it sometimes because we make a little too much noise. <laughs> or we're moving a little too fast to see that the crickets and the deer and the animals and so forth are really right next to us. And so um, meditation in that sense isn't a very complicated process. If anything, it's quite the opposite. It's the most difficult thing to do in a way because it's so uncomplicated. And we're a little bit scared of that. We'd much rather have it a complicated story. It's more familiar to us. <laughs> Television has trained us well. <laughs> anyway, last week I talked to some extent about... Uh, see, what was it? About what? Surrendering, that's right, and, and listening. It's the same old stuff. I give the same old talk every night. <laughs> just has a different kind of few set of words. And it felt, it felt okay as a talk. You know, I have to get up here and that's my job and give a talk somehow. Um, but when I left, there was a feeling I had, even though it seemed to be something useful that was communicated, that it was a little bit impersonal. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but see if I can explain it. Um, that is that it was a little bit philosophical or theoretical or detached. It had a quality of universal law to it or dharma. But it seems important to me, it has become very important in my teaching and in my own practice to recognize that there are several different capacities to our heart. And one capacity, um, which is more connected when, even when our heart is there, is more connected with our mind, is that of a kind of universal compassion or loving kindness, or universal vision that sees birth and death and light and dark and all of the things changing and knows that that's the, the way of the world. 
but for one to live a meditative life in one's inner practice or in relationship to one another, it's also critical that it be brought to the very personal and human level. It can't just be philosophical or impersonal. There's a kind of sweetness and immediacy that comes in personal and human experience and personal and human love that without it we wouldn't be here fully. We would be somewhere in some ideal. It's the willingness to let ourselves open as we do if we have children or if we have a piece of land or a garden and we really put ourselves into the earth and dig and plant and watch and weed and do all the things that make us somehow connected to that piece of earth or to our grandparents if we had a good experience with some elders, which is a wonderful thing that's sort of missing a lot for people in this culture. And it seems important for me to say, maybe just to remind myself as well as you, that the Dharma the practice we do has to be as personal as possible as well as being universal. Someone came up to me during the break and said, kind of reflecting about the practice as we do it and talk about it here. He said that he was working this week with a, an, a person who had AIDS. And this particular person was in a state pretty far along in their illness where they weren't so well in control of their physical body and they were what we call delusional anyway. They weren't really so referenced to um, things in people and memory and so forth and seemed pretty out of it. Um, and he said, uh, relating to that person for a while, and then he had a, a little time apart from that person and came back to look for him and there they were sitting at the end of the hall in full lotus position, very still, with the most peaceful, beautiful gaze on their face. And he said, I went to that person. It was like he bowed to that person and realized, well, I had him in my mind as someone who's delusional and isn't here and doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe that was so for a moment. I don't know. But you never know how it's going to change in another moment. And you can't really fix another person or yourself. What you can do is be there in the moment and listen and receive that particular moment. I've told the story that uh, Sylvia, who sometimes teaches here, told me um, in previous evenings of um, a friend of she and her husband, a uh, friend of hers, who... Anyone know grammar? Never mind. Um, uh, who had, was a very distinguished uh, psych psychoanalyst and had been the president of the American Psychoanalytic Association and American Psychiatric Society, and things like that. Um, and in his later years, uh, although they, she and her husband had been very close friends with this man and wife, um, became senile and lost first memory and orientation and all these things, but didn't lose the basic spirit of his life. And she said it was really a shock to her and an amazing experience to go visit him one day at his house and 
knock on the door, and he opened the door, and they were really close friends, and he said, hello, may I help you? And they, she said, well, I'm Sylvia, and this is my husband's name, and don't you know us? And, and he shook his head and he said, no. He said, I don't know you at all, but whoever you are, please come in and enjoy our home. And she said he'd been a very gracious man and a real gentleman throughout his life. And even though he didn't know who was coming or going at that point, the, the spirit of his heart was still there, and it almost didn't matter. I had a, I had a fight some time ago with a, a Zen master on the telephone, which, you know, hello. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> Talk about the personal and the impersonal. He called me. He was arranging this conference for, for Buddhists around the, uh, America and Europe to come together and talk about meditation practice and Buddhism coming to the West and all that kind of stuff. And he wanted me to come, some people who weren't just the, the Thais or the Japanese or the Asians, but also some Western representatives. And I said I couldn't. Um, my schedule was too full. And I said, um, particularly, I can't travel very much because I have a young child and family responsibilities. And he said to me, how can you do that, he said, um, if in Japan someone who devoted their life to the Dharma, to spiritual practice, would say, I can't teach in this circumstance because I have to take time for my family or my personal things or something. That would be shameful and shocking. When you become a teacher, you devote yourself to the Dharma. And I listened to him and I said, I'm sorry, you have a, a bad understanding of Dharma. <laughs> I love doing it, by the way. It was really... It was, you, you don't get to do that to Zen masters very often. <laughs> He said, what? <laughs> and I said, it seems to me that if you can't take care of the things that are the closest to you, to your own children and your own family and the community you live in in your own backyard, then all the rest of it is just idealism and it has nothing to do with living a life of the Dharma. And he said, well, call him next year and let him know if I was free. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> You know, when Mahatma Gandhi was asked, um, he was uh, traveling around in India, and as he became more famous, different people would come and ask him things, and there were a lot of reporters um, around one time, and he was just leaving on a train, uh, and one reporter said, do you have any message to give to the people of the world? And Gandhi grabbed a piece of paper and scribbled a few words on it and held it up in the window of the train as the train pulled out. And it said very simply, my life is my message. It's an amazing statement to make. And really, the, that's the statement of the Dharma. That how we live, how we touch our family, how we drive... Whoops. <laughs> a little questionable there. I was a... Boston cab driver after I was a Buddhist monk, and I learned some very bad habits. Maybe we'll leave that aside. How we live, how we drive, all of that really bespeaks our Dharma. That is our, our truth. Um,
And it's very personal as well as universal. There's a tomb where Gandhi is buried, or his ashes are interred in part. I think some were probably thrown into the Ganges. But there's a memorial for Gandhi outside of Delhi that is this beautiful open park, basically, which is fitting. It doesn't have a great big building. It has garden and space. And then there's a very low kind of stone place where his ashes might be or whatever. And it's inscribed in stone with one of his expressions, an inscription. And it's a very powerful inscription. It says on it, Before you act, think of the poorest person you have ever met and ask, will this act be of any benefit to them? That's what's inscribed on his tomb. And it was really the place of reference for him to live his life, not as a philosophy, but as a way of being. Before your next act, think of the poorest people that you've ever met and ask, how will this act affect them? What a way to bring the universal spirit of loving kindness or compassion or, or connectedness into the personal. As William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. It's not a general, it's not philosophical, it's really how we are more than... You can behave, behavior is what, it's how we are, not what you believe particularly. I mean, as Alice in Wonderland says, I've believed a lot of impossible things, or isn't there some number of them before breakfast? We believe all kinds of things, but it's more how we are. Now, in order to live in in this, this wedding of the universal and the personal, that means to live in the present moment. That's where they come together. And to do that requires us to let go of the past to some extent, to a great extent, if we can do it. Now, how does one let go of the past? Anybody got any ideas? Breathe, that's a nice one. Go to, go, go to classes? Go through my introductory classes, that's right. Uh huh. Go through your closets. Oh, that's even better. Actually, I'm moving. I'm, I, we have a new house in Woodacre, and, and um, I wanted to just pack everything up and move it, and my wife said no. She said, I see moving as the opportunity to go through everything and let go of about half of it. So that's what we're doing this month. Um, to trust is another way. To, to open to the present, here's another way. is to forgive. Really an important one. To learn to be in the present. To open our heart and our mind is to somehow forgive forgive ourself for a lot of things that really need our forgiveness, to forgive other people naturally, and maybe even more deeply to forgive the world for not being the way that we would hope it to be. And, and maybe on another night we'll talk more fully 
about forgiveness because it's such a deep part of learning to live in the present. To go through your closets, to trust, to breathe, to let go into the present, to forgive. To be able to forgive in some way is not to paper over the suffering of the past. That's not forgiveness. That's kind of a denial or, or again, some ideal. But it's actually to acknowledge the fullness of our difficulties, of the struggles that every human being goes through in being on this earth and being born and having a family and a community and and a life and a body and so forth. To really see it all. We'd like not to in this culture. This week's New Yorker came, and as usual, it had its good cartoons in it. Do you know, do, do people know that there, that there has now been developed a smokeless cigarette? Do you know that? It's true. I, I was listening to National Public Radio a few months ago, and, and the, they're, they're debating whether to market it to ba- the tobacco company because they think it won't be so acceptable to people. Um, it's still, you still get the nicotine and all that rush, but it, you don't see the smoke. It doesn't have all that other stuff to it. Um, so wait another year or so, it'll be out. And there's this ad, or this cartoon rather, that kind of describes the, the way the world has become in 1987. And it shows a little table here. And there's a smokeless cigarette and then alcohol-free beer next to it. <laughs> and then a new noiseless typewriter of the IBM kind. And then it's, next to that is a plotless novel, which is... Uh, <laughs> We do this remarkable thing in our culture of trying every which way to avoid the things that we have to forgive or that we have to open our hearts to or or the pains. And in avoiding it, it means that we can't be here very fully. I read a a letter that that I want to read some parts of it to you. It'll take a while. It'll probably take five minutes to read. And it's only some excerpts. It's, it's um, a letter by James Baldwin to his nephew. Um, and it's very powerful. I hope I excerpted enough that you get a sense of it. It's to his young nephew, his brother's son, who is his namesake, and who's at this time 14 years old and growing up in black America. It was written in the 1950s. He says, Dear James, I've begun this letter five times and torn it up each time. I keep seeing your face which is also the face of your father, my brother. Like him, you are tough, dark, vulnerable, moody, with a very definite tendency to sound truculent because you you want no one to think that you are soft or to discover it. And he goes on, I've known both of you all of your lives, have carried your daddy in my arms and on my shoulders, kissed and spanked him and watched him learn to walk. I don't know if you've known anybody from that far back. If you've loved anybody that long, first as an infant, then as a child, then as a man, you gain a strange perspective on time and on human pain and effort. Other people cannot see what I see whenever I look into your father's face, for behind your father's face as it is today are all those other faces which were his, the joy and the tears. 
He goes on, I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know which is much worse. And this is the crime of which I accuse my country and countrymen and for which I, nor time, nor history can ever quite let go, at least too easily. That they have destroyed and continue to destroy hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it, and do not want to know it. But it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Now, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions as a black person, not very far removed from those described by Dickens in the London of more than a hundred years ago. And I hear people screaming at me, how bitter you are to say this. But I'm writing this letter to you because I love you and I want you to see this. He goes on. Let me spell out precisely what I mean here. He talks about, there's a section I skip about what it was like to see this child born and that all babies are basically to be loved and nurtured. But what I see here, and the heart of the matter, and this is the root of my dispute with this country, you were born, and where you were born, and faced, you were born where you were born, and faced the future that you faced because you were black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born in Harlem in a society, in a white world around you which spelled out with brutal clarity in as many ways as possible that you were a substandard human being. And it goes on and on to talk about this. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with poverty and mediocrity. And he goes on then, Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which raises about your youthful head today, rages, about the reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration. There's no reason for you to try to become white or like white people. There's no basis, whatever, for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. This is all wrong an amazing thing to say. The really terrible thing, my young friend, is that you have to accept them. <coughs> this is harder, and I mean it really seriously. You must accept them and accept the pain that has been inflicted and accept them with love. For these people, in their own innocent way, have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand, and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They've had to believe for many years and for various reasons that black men are inferior to white men, and many of them still do. Many of them, of course, know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. 
In this case, the danger in the midst of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining in a different sphere and all the stars aflame. You'd be frightened because it was out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in your universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. The black man has functioned in a way as the, in the white man's world as a fixed star. Yet don't be afraid. I said that it was intended before that you would perish in the ghetto, perish by never being allowed to go beyond the white man's hopes and definitions, by never being allowed to spell your proper name. You have, and many of us have, defeated this intention. And by a terrible law, a terrible paradox, those innocents who believed that your imprisonment made them safe are losing their grasp of reality. These men are truly your brothers, lost younger brothers. And if the word integration means anything, that is what it means, that we, with love, must force our brothers to see themselves as they really are, to cease fleeing from reality and therefore to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will again. It will be hard, young James, but you come from sturdy peasant stock, from people who picked cotton and dammed rivers and built railroads and in the teeth of the most terrifying odds achieved an unassailable and monumental dignity. You come from a long line of great poets, some of the greatest poets since Homer. One of them said, the very time I thought I was lost, my dungeon shook and my chains fell off. You know and I know that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom a hundred years too soon. We cannot be free until they are all free. God bless you, James, and Godspeed. What's extraordinary to me about that letter is the depth of the forgiveness coupled with the depth of the pain of it. And I guess that's why the forgiveness is so rings so true. Because it's allowed in the midst of seeing the reality of the sorrow as well. How does this relate to our practice, to our meditation and our spiritual life? Here we sit and we do a practice of mindfulness, which means attention or opening of our bodies, of our feelings and heart, our minds, to what is actually here in the present. And we practice it over and over because it's, it's not so easy. We do it for a moment and then we get lost in some new ideal or we do it for another moment and a pain comes, and we're not so used to relating to pain, so we shy away or we contract. Or we do it for a moment and a little bit of fear comes, and we say, whoa-oh, and we fantasize something to escape the fear. And we do it over and over, this very simple act 
of just coming back into the present, to the present reality of its joys and its sorrows. <laughs> I was looking through the Guinness Book of Records today just for amusing things. Remember, I talked about the 130-hour kissing record a few weeks ago. Well, this was on the page about driving. And um, there were several things that I noticed. First was that the oldest um, person to receive a speeding ticket was 104 years old in Southern California and <laughs> was going 95 on a freeway. But then the next two paragraphs spoke of a woman in Yorkshire, England, Margaret, I don't remember her last name at the moment, who attained her driver's license after only 39 times of failure in her driving test. On the 40th try, on the 39th try, she crashed into someone going through a red light herself. But on the 40th try, some six months later, she finally passed, although she admitted she still has difficulty with left-hand turns. <laughs> And there was a woman in Louisville, Kentucky, who herself passed the written driving test after only 104 previous failures. So our meditation practice is a little bit like that. It's true, how many people have lost the breath a hundred times in a sitting? Or lost their ability to be aware again and again? It's really very similar to that. We sit and we come back to the reality of the present and to that which we have to touch with our hearts and that which we have to forgive, that which is beautiful, that which is difficult. Now, in the, in the teachings of Buddhist psychology, there is a, a fundamental diagram that's used in the psychology texts of 2,500 years ago. It's a circle or a cycle, the wheel of samsara, it's called, or that is going in circles. You may know it in a more intimate way than that. And what's key about it, what the Buddha taught or discovered in his expression of the Dharma, was that we have these senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, bodily and mental senses. And we receive these senses. There's contact of sights and sounds and so forth. And then with each moment of perception comes a moment of feeling. In every single moment, there's a feeling. And it can be pleasant, or it can be unpleasant, or it can be neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which we'll call neutral. In every moment, there's a feeling. And then what happens when the pleasant things arise? Anybody who's been to Las Vegas knows that, right? or wherever, there's a moment, or, or whatever you found. Maybe Las Vegas was unpleasant for you, but in any case, there, there's a moment of pleasure, and then what? A response, ooh, how long can I get it to stay? As if it would really last. There's a moment of unpleasant experience, every third one, generally, and what's the response to it? Ooh, let's get rid of that and get more of the other. There's a moment of neutral experience, which is neither very pleasant or unpleasant. And what's the, often the conditioned response? <laughs> Sleep, not paying attention, because it's not so pleasant and it's not unpleasant. You're not trying to get rid of it. These are the conditions of 
reality, or really it's kind of illusory conditions, but they arise moment after moment. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, certain colors and flavors and thoughts and images and feelings. And they're pleasant and they're neutral and they're unpleasant and they're pleasant and they're neutral and they're unpleasant and they're pleasant and they're unpleasant and they're neutral and they're pleasant. That's what they do, right? Anybody have it any different? Raise your hand. All right, so we have that reality. Then what we're asked to do in meditation, what the art of meditation, is to take a seat in the middle and to be aware of these with our eyes and our heart. Our eyes really means our mind. To be able to see what's there, a certain sight or sound or experience. That is the the kind of universal, to see that something new has arisen. And with our heart, to allow ourselves to feel it and not run away. To feel the pleasant, which some people are terrified by. People are as afraid of pleasure as they are of suffering in some cases. To feel the suffering and to feel the things that aren't particularly either. To be open to them and touch them with awareness and somehow with our compassion or our tenderness rather than with aversion or fear. And we sit and we practice that. And that is what leads to understanding and freedom and living more fully in the present. Leads to living in the moment. Our habits are pretty strong. Have you noticed? That's why we call this practice instead of perfect or something else like that. Now, it raises some questions for us if you want to look at your own meditation or your life? The really straightforward question. What places, as you sit in your meditation, in your formal meditation, in your practice, what are the places that you commonly meet with aversion? What are the experiences that arise and you say, not that, I don't want to experience that? For some people it's physical pain, for some it's fear, For some, it's some past memories. For some, it's imaginary things in the future. What is it for you in particular that arises and there's some unpleasant quality about it and that you say, no, thank you, I don't want to experience that? And could you instead just see it and say, boy, that that one's really unpleasant, isn't it? Look, isn't that interesting? That's really unpleasant. Then there's a second question. What arises in your meditative practice, what kinds of things arise that you tend to greet immediately with grasping, with wanting, with desire? What are they? Is it calm for some people, or some sense of happiness or sweetness, or um, fantasies of a certain kind that you really like? What is it? And can you Kind of put this in your mind next time you sit. Can you allow that to arise and see, oh, there's that experience, and it's pleasant. See the pleasure with it. That's the key here. And then say, oh, isn't that interesting? And let it too arise and pass. And then, what are the experiences which arise which put you to sleep? Hmm? Which kind of things arise and you check out and go? Can you think about that? Remember, what are the ones that are common for you? For some people, it's 
loneliness, or for some people it's boredom, or for some people it's when they get a little bit quiet, they don't know what to do with that. All kinds of things. What arises that's difficult to just sit and open to with one's mind and one's heart in a very immediate way? That's the place of practice. Now let's take it another step further and ask the same questions again. What places in your life, which is really practice, what things arise, say this last week or this last month in your life, that you meet with aversion? No, I don't want to deal with that. I don't like it. I don't want to experience it. What are those things? And can you let yourself become aware that they're there, whether you like them or not, and also that they have an unpleasant quality and that the aversion is linked to a condition that I don't want to feel that pain or that difficulty. What things in your life arise that are the condition for a great desire and attachment? Which things arise and you say, I really want to hold on to that? Which kind of things in the past week or month? Reflect on it. Could you imagine experiencing that arising, allowing it? You can even enjoy it, seeing the pleasure in it, but not getting all wrapped up in how long you can get it to stay and being disappointed when it goes. And again, what are the places in your daily life where you most tend to go on automatic pilot and fall asleep? It's really an interesting question to look at. Greed, hatred, and delusion. I remember being in Europe traveling about, I don't know, it was seven or eight years ago. And I was in a very difficult period in my life at that time. Um, some problems in teaching and personal difficulties in relationship and feeling afraid and kind of insecure and quite caught up in a lot of things. And I had a beautiful dream which was of my good friend and mentor, uh, the Lama Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who I hadn't seen for some time before that. But I took a nap one afternoon, and it kind of came as a dream and a vision, and, and he came and he talked to me. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, not all that well. He said, well, what's happening with your teaching? And I said, well, I'm traveling and teaching retreats and doing all this, and but things, you know, I'm caught a little bit difficulties here and there, and kind of described it to him. And he paused and he just looked at me and he said, are you still involved in that greed, hatred, and delusion stuff? <laughs> and I just went, yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. And I woke up right after that and it really touched me in some deep way because it wasn't very complicated. It wasn't like some big long path I had to follow or something. It's like, are you still doing that? You don't have to do that. You know, there's really another possibility. And it's not far away. It's really very immediate. But to do it means that you have to accept that pleasure comes and goes, that neutral things come and go, and that pain also comes. And accept the pain when it's here. That you have to forgive in a really deep way, like that letter that I read from James Baldwin, that you don't run away from the sorrow of the world 
To open, you have to touch that as deeply with your heart in your meditation and your disappointments and your fears as anything else. The Buddha said it very directly at one point. He said, there is one thing, the not seeing of which, keeps you bound on this wheel of samsara, going in circles, expecting and hoping and imagining over and over. He said, it's the not seeing of the truth of unsatisfactoriness, that there is suffering in the world. Anybody have a life without it? And that that's part of the way it is. And that if you can accept that, that things change, that there's pleasant and neutral and unpleasant, then you can live in the fullness and the reality of the present. And so it's not philosophical, it's very personal. The human and the divine are very closely connected. But we don't like it so much. We don't like death or taxes or um, the stock market changing, for, especially if, we're, if we've got margin, stock on margin or leveraged ourselves very far. Somebody asked me the other day, what's the difference between, uh, in 1987, between an investment banker and a pigeon? I said, that a pigeon can still make a deposit on a Mercedes. <laughs> I don't mean to, to, to be unkind to investment bankers. I think they need all of the compassion we can muster at this time. Someone else asked, um, um, after 1987, how do you call your investment banker? Waiter. <laughs> really bad. We don't like death and taxes and stock market changes and um, the fact that when we look in the mirror, this vehicle that we get for a while and rent uh, starts to sag and its finish gets a little bit tarnished and you know, it, uh, the chrome doesn't look as good as it did in the beginning and so forth. And it doesn't have quite the pep as when the engine was newer and cleaner and all. It's just the way it is. And to be at ease with imperfection is the, is the teachings of the Zen patriarch. To see the world without refutation, without rejection of a single thing in the changing conditions of light and dark and birth and death. And that's really what meditation practice is about. We train ourselves using the breath as a way just to stabilize the mind and bring it into the body and using the support of the Sangha so that when we get a little lonely or hungry or something, we'll be too embarrassed to get up. So we learn that it's okay to actually sit and experience what's here. This is where it comes to, though. It really comes very simply to this moment. There's only this moment, one after another, to touch this earth that we live on in this human body and this moment and find the universal and the divine and the personal come together here. It's possible to sit and to look out. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a really moving or beautiful statue of, of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Kuan Yin. The Chinese make these exquisite ones, very, very graceful. Or a very beautiful statue of the Buddha. 
there's just this exquisite smile of peace and happiness. Or a beautiful statue of Jesus, for that matter, or Mary, whatever you like. Some, something that's carved into form a kind of an expression of the archetype of the divine. But it's actually possible for us to look out with those eyes, that we can see the world with the eyes of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva and say, yes, things are born and grow up and and die. And seasons change, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. And to also see the world even more wonderfully, I think, with the heart of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or the Madonna or whoever you like, that the heart really can do it, can stand it, to touch this and allow it all to come in. And maybe in a way, our meditation, the art of meditation, is, is just to learn in the simplest way to do what I was doing up on the land at Spirit Rock, just to sit and be still for a bit and start to hear the life around us and realize that we are connected with it, that we're not separate. To learn to swim in it and let go enough to realize that it's buoyant, that it supports you. It's true, it really does. It'll kill you in the end as well, of course. But you might as well swim instead of being terrified of the water. This is called Underground Water by Ajahn Chah. The Dharma belongs to no one. It has no owner. It arises in the world when the world manifests, yet stands forever as the truth. It's always here, unmoving, limitless, for all who seek it. It's like the the water underground. Whoever digs a well finds it. Yet whether you dig or not, it's always here, underlying all things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.